There is an inescapable link between three of the topics we cover in this week's issue. How much event revenue North American sports properties have lost to this pandemic, whether they can expect insurance to cover any of it, and to what degree PPP loans have helped them weather this brutal span. Our research director, David Broughton, and staff writer, Brett McCormick, are in to take a look at all of that. Then, we'll hear from executive editor and publisher, Abe Madcor. Those and whatever else comes up once we get talking here in the work-from-home newsroom of Sports Business Journal. I'm Bill King, and this is First Look. When you calculate pandemic-related financial losses, as we did in this week's issue, you're inevitably drawn to the question of what teams and operators can do to either stem or replace those losses. Well, there's pandemic-related insurance, impossible to come by now, and it seems not commonly purchased before in sports. There are the federal payroll protection loans you've heard so much about, quite common across some corners of U.S. sports, we found after diving into documents released this week. That all sort of fits together, and to discuss all of it, we have our research director, David Broughton, and staff writer, Brett McCormick. David, let's start with the calculation of the losses. Now, it's it's not like there are quarterly reports that we can turn to for a lot of these, but you're able to calculate with a good degree of confidence what all these canceled games will cost the industry, right? Not necessarily total losses, media losses, sponsorship losses, some other things, but in terms of money generated in the ballpark, in the arena, in the stadium, that is what we got at here. What's the number and how did you get there? Well, the numbers so far, and this is based on uh, uh, multiple conversations over the past several months with uh, league officials from 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 every league or, or at least team level officials in each league. Uh, so, yeah, we're pretty confident we've got this. We also uh, reconciled some of the data with some team marketing report uh, data. and They've been tracking fan uh, spending, game day attendance and the game day uh, spending for 20 years, uh, almost as long as we've been around, SBJ. So we're, we're pretty uh, pretty confident in that. That number is uh, right at $6.0 billion uh, of, of lost game day revenue. And that, like you said, that's uh, that's ticket sales, uh, Cokes, beers, and, and T-shirts, just game day. So David, how does that break out? Well, it, it probably won't surprise a whole lot of people that baseball, organized baseball, was the, was the biggest contributor to that loss. Uh, more than 80% of the lost games, and the, the, the lost games were over 19,000, uh, came at the expense of organized baseball. And I'm, I'm talking about Major League Baseball, spring training, minor league baseball, independent leagues, and the college summer leagues like uh, you know the Cape Cod League and, and Northwoods. Yeah, those were 80% of the lost games, and baseball as a sport absorbed more than 70%. Of, of that $6 billion revenue loss. So it, it mainly came from baseball. But our study, we, we looked at uh, NBA. Well, I mean, we looked at every sport in, in, in terms of organized uh, leagues, NBA, G League, WNBA, NHL and minor league hockey, soccer at every level. Uh, so really, um, really anything uh, professional. And, uh, and we threw in a couple just uh, uh, like Final Four. But for the most part, this is all uh, pro and semi-pro sports. And that's how many games, how many events? Because that's another staggering number when you think about it. 19,044 games. Now, again, this is just games. So we we didn't calculate, we we didn't really have a way to calculate PGA tournaments or or tennis tournaments. Uh, So this is mainly stick and ball. But yeah, 19,044 games. 116 million fans didn't attend games. And that's through when? It depends on the league, but I mean, we, we calculated uh, all of minor league baseball season based on the past three seasons. 
Um, uh, WNBA, same thing. And then we any any season like uh, NBA and NHL that were already you know pretty close to being done, we used the the number of home games that they were that they have lost uh, based on the season to date uh, average attendance. And the reason I ask is because to, so so did, is that baseball with 162 or is this this going to continue to go up? No, this is the, that's based on because what, once we finished the, and redid and redid and redid these numbers, uh, MLB had finally announced the the 60 game season. Ideally, the still the goal, of course, is still 30 home games per team. We'll see if that is reality or not, but that that's based on that. Yeah, but but if there are no fans at any of those 30 home games, that the number the number goes up, right? Yes. So right now, that's based on uh, every team losing 51 home dates. What was really striking to me is is it's it's you know you throw a number out there like six billion and it's like I do any of us really know what that means? I mean it's it, we know it's a large number, but then when you got down and you started thinking about what this meant and it's it's one thing at the major league level, the MLB, the NBA, the NHL, um, where they will salvage some media revenue and some sponsorship revenue and try to try to you know to to at least play part of a season or complete a season, get through the playoffs in the case of a couple of them and play what they hope would be a 60 game season. And then through the playoffs from major league baseball. But if you're a minor league operator, you're done, right? You're done. And then that's, to me, that's the saddest part about the, the, the whole thing is that there's obviously going to be a lot of teams that are going to probably not be around next year, but even just, I mean, the venues, Roger Dean stadium, that, that they've, they've lost 129 games. But no, no minor league baseball and and loss of spring training. That's the that's where the the, the Cardinals and um, uh, Marlins have spring training right. and single A team. I mean, they're gone. There, there's 129 games there. That's you know over 365 days. That's a pretty pretty big jump. And and uh, all these stadiums now that have a, a minor league team and a USLC team. You're talking baseball and soccer. Right. You're talking you know 75 or more games events that those are those are the anchor tenants you can still have your your 10 person weddings or whatever your your local guidelines are but there's a lot of lot of minor league buildings and not a lot of minor league teams that are just that's money that's gone never coming back and it'll be tough to recover in 2021 too well we have a story this week that uh along with those numbers um i spoke to a couple of minor league owners uh <laughs> about exactly what this means to them and and it's 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 striking you know you think about triple a clubs generally in the in the range of 10 to 20 a, a few a little over 20 million dollars a year in revenue and that's not just event revenue right that does include sponsorship and and right. name and right. naming rights um but still the the um you know that's that is in essence gone what i'm hearing is is that in essence you know you could have maybe a hundred thousand dollars if everything goes really well. Uh, in terms of if you can, you know, you can find some events here and there to sprinkle in some local events where you can do either a have a collegiate summer league team and uh, and space people out in the ballpark and get a little bit of rent out of that, um, or sell some concessions around it. Um, but that, you know, again, owners are feeling like at a hundred thousand dollars that, that would be, you know, that would be, they'd be doing pretty well to salvage that. Um, so you're talking about upward of 90% of, uh, yeah. of their revenue is gone, flat out gone, irreplaceably gone. Yeah. Well, like you said, they're, they're trying to make do, uh, the, the blue Wahoos in Pensacola are, uh, are renting. You can rent the stadium out 
for a sleepover. You get uh, up to 12 people um, after after the Airbnb fees. It comes up to about 250 bucks a person. But you get dinner and play play do batting practice and watch a movie and stuff. Uh, but yeah, uh, they're having to be even more creative than than minor league baseball is known to be creative about. But you're talking about 90 percent of the revenue, and now that the, the, the PPP loans are are running out, you're talking about all the, those folks who were held on for a long time. They're they're about to probably enter into a, a period of unemployment. Yeah, most of them, uh, you know, from what I'm hearing, was the the uh, the end of June was about it. And uh, yeah. that's a good bridge. Uh, you mentioned the PPP, Brett. Uh, you took a deep dive into those numbers this week, right? Um, what did you find? It was a very deep dive, like the, the deep end of the pool. Um, and as a father of a nearly four-month-old PPP, it had a different connotation for me <laughs> until this week. Um, now it has a different connotation um, over in my nightmares. Yeah, it looks like over 600 sports organizations uh, that we found – and this was from a list. Uh, they gave out nearly five million loans through this program, and we had we were working off a list that had somewhere around like six hundred sixty thousand loans that went to companies that got more than one hundred fifty thousand. If your company received less than one hundred fifty thousand dollars, they did not include a, identifying you know a name or anything like that. So we just dealt with the with the bigger entities, which was a lot of the bigger sports uh, properties anyway, and. Um, David Broughton did uh, the, the mathematics behind this and found uh, we've got an estimated $665.9 million that went to the sports industry. And uh, their chart uh, that the Small Business Administration, uh, you know, published, um, made public for download, um, showed, you know, one of the columns was jobs preserved uh, because of the loan, like, you know, what, what jobs were able to be retained because of the loan. And uh, for the sports industry, that cho- that totaled uh, roughly 36,000 jobs. So um, we've got a lot of you know little anecdotes from companies. Uh, you know, a lot of them didn't really want to weren't long winded. You know, in talking about this, but you know, most the gist for most of them was this helped them uh, avoid furloughs or delay furloughs or hire back people that were on furlough. And um, it, it seems like these loans. I know there's been a lot of uh, negative coverage about them, and, and you know there has definitely been some some eyebrow raisers, you know, that uh, received loans. But you know, for the sports industry, I think it was a it was definitely a good thing. Yeah, I'll jump in real quick too on that one. Uh, it, Bill and Brett, the three of us, and, and all of all of us at SBD, SBJ, the coverage that we've been doing for four months now is 90% of our jobs or sometimes 100% of our jobs is is covering the effects of the pandemic and it, just like everybody else it's really can can you know drag you down when that's all we're focused on at work and personally so digging through these numbers you, you go back to what you said earlier bill you see the number like 6 billion well, that's a big number but what does it really mean i'll say that the, the number that really jumped out at me for the PPP was just what Brett just said, 36,000 people didn't lose their jobs and they still got a paycheck for three months. This is a really good thing. Despite, yeah, the negative, a lot of negative stories, there's 36,000 people in our industry that still had their jobs as a result of this. And and anybody you talk to who was benefited from this, like Brett said, that, you know, they might have been hesitant to go into details, but everybody was 
really, really grateful. And that seems like an automatic thing. Of course, they were grateful. They got a, you know, a, a loan to keep going. But it was a different feel than a lot of things. It, it's, a lot of people were just really grateful for this program. So uh, David also went through the recipients and kind of divided them into categories. And so the the top categories, top recipients, um, kind of by category was minor league baseball. Uh, you had 90 um, organizations that received loans. Is this correct to say, David, that probably some of those organizations operate multiple teams or was or were we saying that was 90 minor league teams that got loans? The first part, yeah. Some yeah, run, so, uh, multiple teams. They might run. Yeah. Uh, they, they might have also run a, a minor league soccer team too. So yeah, it's and, yeah, and okay. use, yeah. Right, and then uh, youth sports. There was a lot of them on there. Uh, Eighty-two of them. Um, we didn't we didn't parse those out. Uh, we kept them on the list. Um, Motorsports had uh, sixty-five uh, entities received loans, and then horse racing was another one uh, with forty-five that was that was pretty popular. Some of those were tracks, but a lot of those were. Uh, individual stables and you can imagine that you know horse horse racing stables probably kept on a lot of you know minority potentially lower income people you know that that work in the stables so um, it was good to see that too it was kind of interesting i thought that the motorsports and horse racing were uh number one and number three in terms of uh total approved loans almost identical to the number of jobs retained both were right right about four thousand so just between car racing and horse racing there was one hundred and thirty eight thousand. 138 million in in approved loans and saved 8,000 jobs. Right, and then interesting was uh, the the company that uh, we found that received the most PPP money in total appears to be uh, the architecture firm Populous, which through three different companies, you know, you have the the main Populous architecture firm, but then two other kind of subsidiaries. Um, they received a range of between either 5.7 million or 12 million, and so the the data provided a range of the loan that the company got. You know, it didn't say specifically. So where we had specifics in our story was because com- companies told us that. But Populous was eligible for the most money based on uh, based on what we found, which is which is interesting. You know, they're building you know many of the biggest and newest stadiums in the U.S. and and, and globally. So uh, it was interesting to see that they were uh, top of that list. Yeah, and I spoke to a couple of minor league baseball owners. The PPP was a, a huge part of of their stories. Um, you know, the the Ken Young, who who owns uh, owns five clubs, um, including clubs in Albuquerque uh, and in uh, and in Norfolk, the Tides. David, they're still the Tides, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> These things change so often. I always have to check in with our, our our guy who keeps track of all the caps. You know. Um. So so so. Uh, but speaking with Ken Young, you know he. He tells the story of waking up in April um, and and sort of realizing mid, midway through April, um, we're not going to have a season. He just didn't see a path to it. And I, I think that a lot of people at that point realized there was not a path to it. Uh, and so he uh, he got on a call with uh, all his general managers or presidents um, of, of his clubs and said, this is, you know, this is going to be really bad and not surprisingly. And here's what I need you to do. Um, we're not going to get rid of anybody now. We're not going to do any layoffs now or furloughs now. We'll be applying for PPP, but come the end of June, we're going to have to do something. And so I want you to, in the next month, figure out whether it's six or eight. And these clubs generally have 16 to 32 uh, employees, uh, you know, the, the, the clubs that he runs. And so you might keep six, you might keep eight, you might keep fewer than those, but figure out who it is that can help us get through this and we'll have some skills that will, you know, 
help us right away when we come back from this. And other than that, it's going to be everybody. Make your case for, you know, however, whatever that handful is, let's figure out who that is. And then at the start of June, they informed everyone else what they were doing. And and uh, no, I don't think many people would have been surprised um, to find that with no season, they likely wouldn't have jobs. And so, uh, but they but they were paid through the end of June until that PPP loan ran out. And of course, that turns, we call it a loan, it, it turns into a grant um, as long as you're using it for uh, for payroll, right? So um, yep. that's that's what all of them are doing, um, or most of them are doing, I suspect. I, I would imagine there are, there are, there's a little wiggle room to do some other things, but certainly the both of them, that's how they used it. Uh, and that saved some jobs for, you know, through the end of June. But but he told people, you know, A, they, they had a month ahead of time to know that it was coming. And B, he, you know, he was quite frank and said, I, I don't know what this looks like in January. You know, we roll into next season. I don't know if we're at 50% capacity. I don't know what our season is going to look like. I don't know what our revenue is going to look like. And oh, by the way, any of that sponsorship revenue is getting pu- pushed forward to the next year. Um, any uh, anything, So any money you already had in the door, which remember the timing of all this, and that's interesting too. You know, it's, it's real easy to think, well, they already probably got a lot of season ticket money. They already probably got a lot of their sponsorship money. Well, that may be true, but in the case of you know of some clubs, they also paid their rent on January first for the full year for a bo- for a building that they in essence won't use. So they did have expenses. They you know they bought all their merchandise most likely. They probably purchased all uh, all their giver- giveaways, and many of them they couldn't return. Um, so those will be stored, and yes, they'll be able to use them next year. But from a cash flow perspective, it creates a ton of problems, and uh, and and that's why you know we hear those conversations about questions around insolvency, right? I mean, David, that's that's been a big topic around minor league baseball now, the question of who will be left standing when this is all over. Yeah. And and because a lot of those revenue streams, even even if you get really, really down in into the, uh, the micro numbers here, like some of those sponsors that, like you said, said, yeah, we'll, we'll bump to next year. Like, guess what? Some of those companies aren't going to be there next year. No. And some of those season ticket holders are among the 44 million that lost their jobs. They're not going to be able to come back for a couple of years. So it's, uh, yeah, talk about the liquidity for, for minor league teams, not just in baseball, but across the whole minor league spectrum. Uh, it, it, it could not be more unnerving to be a, a minor league team owner right now. And, and two other things, you know, you, you have to consider as well. Um, one, one of those is that you remember minor league baseball is, is you know, but we're, we're going to see contraction for lack of a better word in minor league baseball as, as the, uh, as the short season, many of those short season clubs go away. Uh, 42, I, I suspect clubs will be, uh, will be lopped off. Could be more than that because I think there'll be some independent league clubs who will be absorbed into minor league baseball. All that is likely coming. So if you're one of those teams that was on that list, if you're one of those clubs that was on that list, uh, and you don't have a season and you've got expenses and, and by the way, you know, any money you've collected, somebody else can say, go to a season ticket holder and say, or go to a sponsor and say, well, next year, can, you know, can we hang on to your money and roll it over? Well, there's no season to roll it into. And so what happens to them? They, they won't have the cash for those refunds in many cases. Um, that all gets ugly. The, the second piece of this that I think is, is interesting though, is when you think about the escalation of minor league franchise values, that will serve a lot of these clubs very well because they have built up equity over the time that they've owned these teams. And so you can, if, if you see this, if you believe this is coming back, 
um, you know, in, in two years, whatever it is, then you, what you need is, is you need to find the financing structure that gets you through this, whether it's to write a check, whether it's to make cash calls to your partners, whether it's to bring in new investors, whether it's to take a loan. Um, but you at least have the equity to do that. I, I suspect in many, many of these cases, right? Yeah. It, it's like a lot of, uh, it's, it's almost like college athletics. You know, there's just a handful that are making money. You know, making enough money where they could where they could afford to lose a season and not fold or not you know, and not be in danger of folding a year from now. So it's, it's back back to the, the liquidity thing. Yeah, it's, uh, there's not many teams that are going to be able to come back full steam at opening day 2021. The other piece of this that all again is sort of intertwined. And that's the question of insurance, right? Because that's the other thing you would look at here. You would say, well, you've had this, in essence, catastrophic event um, that is, that, that, that's wiping out all this money. We thought from the beginning, some of that might be insured. Um, we spoke to attorneys who said, yeah, you probably could, you might be able to go after it here or there. Uh, we spoke to others who said, nah, there's not going to be much coverage out there. Brett, you spent a bunch of time talking to a lot of people. What did you find? Yes, I wrote over 4,000 words about insurance this past week. So right there in the nightmares with the PPP. Um, so, and a good segue actually is that 15 minor league baseball teams are um, sued five different insurance companies to try to um, get their business interruption claims covered. And um, that's going to be one of the big legal debates this year around insurance is business interruption fault and this could get uh, confusing and boring quick. So I'm no, trying to be no, it's safe, it actually it's actually this is really important. So go. It, it is important. It is boring and it is important. So just know that, listener. Business interruption insurance falls under uh, property damage insurance, and so the the fundamental question that courts are going to be facing across the country is: Does COVID nineteen cause property damage? So in the same way that a fire or a flood or a car driving into your business, you know, and smashing through a wall, does the presence of COVID-19 or the suspected presence constitute property damage? And so the way uh, minor league baseball teams, 15 of them, all classifications, you know, every, every level of minor league baseball, their argument is that uh, they lost use of their facilities this year because of COVID-19. And so just COVID-19's existence constitutes uh, loss of a facility, which is, you know, like connected to property damage. So uh, there's going to be some really, really important legal arguments uh, decided. And part of the reason they're going to be important is because there's so little precedent uh, for what's going on. You know, you obviously don't have a scale pandemic of this scale in the modern era, you know, at least 100 years. Uh, And by the time we're done with it, you know, it may be maybe uh, more rare than that. And so there are a lot of questions involving insurance that just don't have clean answers. But one of the stories that, we, that I wrote was just looking at the current state of sports industry insurance. And so it's you can kind of break it down into three levels. The base level is event cancellation is probably one of the most common types of uh, insurance that the sports industry has. Um, you could look at business interruption is generally going to be held by a league you know, or, um, you know, a team that operates throughout a year. Event cancellation tends to be more connected to, obviously, events. So the NFL would have business interruption insurance for its overall business, and then it would have an event cancellation policy for the Super Bowl, for example. So event cancellation insurance you can get right now, but it is going to be more expensive, and it's going to have more exclusions. 
uh, for example, COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's going to be, uh, people will refer to it as a hardened insurance market. So, you know, it's not as friendly, which makes sense. The next level down is communicable disease coverage. So before the pandemic, you could get communicable disease coverage for, say, like 4 to 20% of the premium added on top. So if your premium was $100,000 a year, you could get it. You could get communicable disease coverage added onto your event cancellation policy for like $15,000 more or whatever. So it wasn't super common uh, in the sports industry. Um, the communicable disease aspect of it. Um, event cancellation insurance was fairly was fairly common, but the communicable disease coverage was not really held by many. Uh, Wimbledon obviously is like the big winner this mm-hmm. year, you know, with the um, policy they purchased after uh, the SARS outbreak in 2003. Um, but the NCAA, uh, Big East, uh, the Olympics also had uh, communicable disease coverage. And then you go one layer further. So communicable disease coverage is, is available, but it's rare. It's also going to have a huge markup price-wise. So the communicable disease quotes that you can get right now, I mean, they're going to be like 50% more expensive than they would have been this time last year. So um, communicable disease coverage is – that market is almost completely closed, I right. mean, except for the teams that are really willing to spend out of their ass, you know, and, and really have to have it, um, which is really very few. And then there's also maybe probably – less than a handful of insurance companies globally that are even willing to go there and offer it. Then you go one step further down and that's COVID-19 coverage specific to COVID-19. And that is unavailable. Like you cannot get that. Um, Trying to get COVID-19 coverage right now would be like if your house was, you know, burning to the ground and you called your insurance company and tried to get um, home insurance. I mean, that's just not available right now and not going to be available for the foreseeable future. So the communicable disease coverage aspect will bounce back, you know, maybe in a few years, um, you know, it'll be, it, the price will come down as, as the pandemic maybe wanes, assuming it wanes, but COVID-19 coverage you may never see again, because one of the interesting things that I, I didn't really realize this, but it was laid out pretty clearly, especially as I was reading through like uh, very interesting trade journals, like insurance journal and carrier management, Um, was the insurance company views pandemics as essentially uncoverable. So they don't want to offer insurance for pandemics because one of the fundamental aspects of insurance is you spread out risk. You know, you get all these, you get all these premiums every month and then you have to pay, you know, as an insurance company, you have to pay out once in a while, but it's spread out. You can manage it. You're piling up cash while nothing's going on. And so you can handle it when a hurricane comes or something like that. The problem with the pandemic, especially at this scale, is it was everything at once. So you're getting literally millions of business interruption insurance claims all at once because business interruption insurance is really a facet of every – it's like a basic facet of every business. Right. Event cancellation is really more specific to live events, um, you know, entertainment or sports. But business interruption, I mean – Any business you step inside should have that or something similar to it. So the problem with the pandemic was it was an avalanche of claims all at once that they can't afford. They can't they can't they can't pay possibly pay that out. And so, you know, um, people call it pandemic coverage, but communicable disease coverage 
is really something that the insurance industry is not like overly eager to get involved with. Um, and I think that's going to be even more the case, you know, moving forward. So is business interruption coverage going to cover my lost events? I mean, I know that's generally lost event, you know, that's, that's event cancellation, but, but is my business interruption coverage or is that, that's, that's really for something else? That's the courts are going to have to figure that Mm -hmm. out because, you know, sports properties are going to start claiming that. So we're kind of like, if you look at the timeline of what's going on, you're not going to have lawsuits until you have claims. So there's a lot of sports properties, especially minor league baseball, for example, that are still totaling their losses. You know, you're still trying to figure it out. Or if you're, um, I don't know, like ING or an agency or, or something, you know, you're, you're, you don't know the extent of your damage yet. And so you can't really make a claim mm-hmm. yet. If you can't make a claim, your claim cannot be denied. Um, and it's the denial of, of uh, coverage that is leading to lawsuits. So this is everybody I talked to said this is going to take years to play out, you know, at least two or three years for a lot of these cases to be decided. One example that was kind of compared to it's a it's sort of a precedent. It's not it's not exactly, but it's similar is asbestos, which again, speaks to the presence of something that damages a property in a way that makes it harms the business. And so mitigating asbestos was very expensive for a lot of businesses. And so they were, you know, kind of saying that in the same way that COVID-19 or the argument would be made, COVID-19 impacts a business in the same way that asbestos does. That's, that's one argument I heard that will, that lawyers will try to use when they're uh, suing insurance companies over business insurance. I forgot the second half of that term, but I'm going to interrupt you because it's business interruption insurance. Business interruption. Perfect. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Another, another uh, legal aspect of this is that's pretty interesting is a lot of these cases are going to come down to uh, language, you know, as a lot of cases do, but especially with, with policies, which are contracts, you have some contracts that refer to coverage of a pandemic uh, coverage of a pathogen, coverage of a virus, coverage of a disease. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's going to be critical in a lot of cases because COVID-19 is the disease that is caused by the coronavirus. You know, SARS, I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but it's SARS-CoV-2, something something like that. It sounds like a computer program. So did COVID-19... Or Elon Musk's next kid. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Did COVID-19 cause the damage? Did the SARS virus cause the damage? Uh, you know, there's going to be that's going to be fought in court um, by somebody that's saying, well, you know, your your uh, policy said that we would cover a virus but not a disease, and so if, if COVID is the problem, then we're not covering that. You know, and so I mean, it, it, it gets down to that. I mean, like interpretation of insurance uh, insurance policies is going to be really critical. And, you know, one of, one of the things to keep in mind there is that insurance, the, the onus legally is on insurance companies to write policies like in the broadest sense and, or the most clear sense of the terms. And so they, they have to be interpreted that way too. So really it's kind of, it's on the insurance company to prove that something is not covered as opposed to the person with the policy having to prove that something was covered. Well, so that, that, that is, a bit of a difference, definitely um, in the favor of people suing insurance companies uh, in this case. Well, that's going to be an interesting piece of the legal debate as well, because you know you think about it, it for all those people who have communicable disease coverage, but exclusions, because from what I 
understand in many cases, even if you do have communicable disease coverage, there will be, SARS is probably excluded. Some of the others that became common were excluded. And so anything that's on that exclusion list, you know going in, I don't have coverage for that. Well, COVID's not going to be on any of those those uh, excluded exactly. lists because it didn't exist. So the, the person who is, is, is suing um, is going to be claiming, well, you didn't exclude COVID and the insurance company is going to say, well, it didn't exist. How could we? That's going to be an interesting debate. Right. And so the second, um, one of the other stories that, w- that I wrote about this topic was the future of, uh, of this kind of insurance. And so you can understand that this is a big moment for insurance companies to make changes. Okay, so here's some context. So Katrina was the biggest insurer, uh, biggest event in the insurance industry um, in history in the United States, uh, $54 billion of losses for the insurance industry uh, coming from you know money they had to pay out. Lloyd's of London, which is a historic uh, insurance marketplace in London, they, they are like a kind of oversee and, and talk about the insurance industry, have their pulse on the industry predicted in May that the um, global uh, losses as far as payouts for the insurance industry was going to be over a hundred billion dollars. And that to me, I don't, I am not an insurance expert and that estimate sounds really low. Uh, That I think that was with the assumption that people would do everything they could to prevent the uh, virus from spreading, which, you know, has has not been the case in a lot of major countries in the world. And, um, you know, in fact, it's like getting way worse in a lot of places. Uh, and so I think those estimates are going to be really low when it's kind of finished. And then, you know, that's also another question, like, when is it finished? So also difficult to make estimates because of that. But I think one thing they're going to do is think to themselves, OK, we didn't know about COVID-19. So how could we have been prepared for this? Well, we could not have. What they can do in the future, though, is just make terms more restrictive to try to cover things that they can't imagine. And so that's where I see, uh, and you know, experts in the industry see communicable disease coverage becoming more difficult to get because it's an undeniable scientific fact that pandemics are becoming more common in the 21st century. This was kind of an unofficial list that I had, that I had, um, somebody gave me seven and then, um, we added two, you know, I was talking to, um, epidemiologists about this list, but there's been, it, it looks like there's, by consensus, there's been about nine pandemics in the 21st century already in, in 20 years. Um, seven of those diseases are zoonotic. So that means they were um, animals transmitted them to humans. And so the reason that pandemics are going to become more common is because environmental degradation, climate change, deforestation, all these things bring animals and humans into closer contact, which creates these crazy diseases that we have no cures for. Think like Ebola, Zika virus, West Nile, uh, MERS, SARS, um, swine flu, like all these things originate from animals and jump to humans. Uh, And then you also have climate change, you know, you have a warming climate. So you've got mosquitoes in places they never were before, you know, things like that are meaning the pandemics are like going to become more common in in our time. And so the insurance industry, like I said, does not want to cover pandemics. They can't do it. And so how do they stay out of the major losses that they would suffer is they just get nowhere near them and they don't offer the coverage. Or if they do, it's at such a stupid rate that, you know, only Wimbledon uh, can afford it. And, and, you know, the losses will not be so big for the insurance industry. So that's, I mean, that's really going to be one of the big results coming out of this, which I think means, you know, 
it, to sum it up quickly is that sports organizations are really going to have to think about risk in other ways besides just financing it, which is paying a monthly premium for insurance to cover the unexpected. That's just not going to be feasible for most sports organizations. That's a good way to wrap it up because again, it all it all does tie together, doesn't it? When you think about the six billion, does, yeah. the six billion dollars in losses and whether they're covered, and what can you what can you do to just survive for a few more months and pay some people? Um, it's uh, it's it's all been inexorably linked. Um, so, guys, thanks so much for uh, for helping us put it all together. David Broughton and Brett McCormick, thanks so much for uh, helping us put it together. No problem. First Look is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're a fan of our podcast, subscribe on your mobile device to have First Look delivered right to your phone every Monday morning. Now, we'll bring in executive editor and publisher, Abe Madcor. Abe? Thank you, Bill King. I'm Abe Madcor. Good to talk to everybody this week. Hope everyone's doing well, being healthy, being good to each other. What am I not watching? That's the bigger question for me. A couple of things to keep an eye on. First, I know I've talked about it with John Aran on a quick video. We did a podcast on the subject. It was talked about in Buzzcast this morning. I am really keeping an eye on reaction to the rival auto racing circuit, Superstar Racing Experience, announced on Monday. Six short track races starting next summer, developed by Ray Evernham, Tony Stewart, George Pine, Sandy Montag. What do they have in common? They're connected. What do they have in common? They're respected. What do they have in common? They're big thinkers. So this is a very interesting concept. I'm anxious to see the reaction to NASCAR, where George Pine worked for many, many years and is very close to the France family and also a number of the executives there. I'm very interested to hear what team owners have to say about the concept and drivers. But keep an eye on the momentum that the superstar racing experience gathers this week. Also keeping an eye on college football, 14 SEC athletic directors were scheduled to be in Birmingham today for an in-person meeting to discuss the fall sports schedule. Now, this meeting had reportedly been planned for a while. Commissioner Greg Sankey wants to hear from the athletic directors about what their thoughts are about continuing with the fall season. No major decisions could come out of Monday's meeting, but the discussions could lead to a conference-only schedule. It could lead to postponing the season until spring of 2021. It could just lead to a deferment where they wait until the end of July before making any big decisions. They feel they still have some time. But the college calendar is something I'm keeping an eye on. Another area to keep an eye on, look for the return of fans in certain sports properties. We saw it last week with the Pro Bull Riders. The EPL came out late last week and said that they are aiming to have fans back for the start of next season with stadiums at 30 to 50% capacity. All fans would have to wear masks, and they would definitely open the facilities for hours beforehand to allow for social distancing. The most likely start date for next season is September, September 12th more specifically. So think about that. They're thinking in eight weeks they'll allow up to 50% capacity at EPL venues. So I'm keeping an eye on what other sports look to bring fans back. This will be a big week for the NBA as it hits Disney World and it's July 30th restart 
So keep your eye, of course, on the number of positive tests and to make sure that the bubble stays intact for both the NBA and Major League Soccer. And the PGA rolls into Murford Village in Ohio this week for the Memorial Tournament, Jack Nicholas's major tournament. Now, this was going to be the first event in the new schedule to allow fans on site, but the surge of coronavirus cases throughout the country and in Ohio caused the tour to scrap its plan to allow 8,000 fans per day on the ground. So that's not going to happen on this one. But Tiger Woods is scheduled to play at the Memorial, so it'll be a big week for the PGA Tour. So, Bill, those are some things I'm keeping an eye on this week. This is the week of July 13th. Amazing where the time is going. But again, I'm Abe Madcore. Hope everybody stays safe, stays healthy, stays being good to each other, and I'll talk to you again next week. Back to you, Bill. Thanks, Abe. That's going to do it for this week. For Abe Madcor, Brett McCormick, David Broughton, and our producer, Chris Mason, I'm Bill King, and this has been First Look. 